Amen. Amen. Body of believers. Happy to be here this Monday. I mean, this morning. I say this Monday. It ain't Monday yet. Um, I just pray that God touches your heart as he has in mind, um, particularly with this, this topic we're going we're gonna to tackle today. I think it's interesting, Pastor Brian, that you had mentioned focusing on our treasures in heaven. And that's really the gist of the message. And so just I just love how God works that out. Like I haven't talked to Pastor Brian at all. That's just the revelation that he gave Pastor Brian. And then that's what God has been speaking to me in my heart. And so uh, that's that's the goal in today. So today we'll be coming out of Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. And if I had to give this study, this teaching, if you will, a a title, I would title it this, look up and look forward. Look up and look forward. Forward to what? To Christ's return. To Christ's return. So I would title this to look up and to look forward, forward looking, to be forward looking of Christ returning and coming. So that's how I would I would title this if I had to give it a title. You didn't ask me, Fernando. You always ask me, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fernando always asks me, like, Gerald, what's the title? What's the title? So it's uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Look up, look forward. And before we get into the main text, I just want to, I want to read another scripture. Um, it's, it's in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to just read it real quick for you. Chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers. Paul said he's a worker, workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. So Paul says to the Corinthians that he is a worker for their joy. He's a worker for their joy. And, and the reason I bring that out is because when, when Pastor Brian or, or when I encourage you, for example, to maybe go to a missional community or go to the, to the Bible studies or to go out and, and share the gospel, we're doing this for your joy. This is not just like a dictator type ship or some type of authoritative thing. We're saying, no, do this religious activity. We're doing this for your joy, because as I mentioned last week, the thrill is in obedience. And so as you follow Christ, as you actually do the things that he he commands, guess what? You find more joy in God. And so when we encourage you, we're encouraging you for your joy. We want you to have joy in God. We want you to see God more clearly as we study the discipleship scripture. That is so that you can see God more clearly and find more joy in the Lord. So please understand that's why we do this. When we teach it so you may have more joy, more understanding of who God is. So we're workers for your joy. And I pray that in the scriptures today, in the teaching today, that you really um, see or find more joy in the Lord. It's about our joy in God. As Piper would say, um, how does he say it? You know, Pastor Brian, um, uh, how do you, I can't even think of the phrase, those who are happy in God. God is more glorified. There you go. God is more glorified in us when we are 
satisfied in him. There we go. That's the thing. He got it. God is more glorified in us when we are satisfied in him. Because when we are satisfied and find our joy in God, boy, we go hard for God. We tell everybody about God. We want to follow his commandments, his love. So once we're happier in God, we pursue God even more. So I pray that your joy is full in the Lord. So let's, let's read over our, our text today. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 through 14. I'm coming out the NASB. It's yours. If you have something different, it may read a little bit different. Paul is writing to Titus in Crete. And look what he says in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. My brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to look up and to look forward. I I have one purpose in this, in this, in this study, and that is to help you to see the value of Christ and his return to help you see the, the value of the treasures in heaven. And so I pray that God just opens your spirit to, to allow you to assess, to uh, appraise the, the value of your treasure in Christ and his return. And so that's what I, I hope comes across today. In this, in this letter that Paul wrote to, to Titus, he's encouraging Titus to keep this, keep on his work that he left for him to do in the island of Crete. And, and in this island, he, he encourages Titus to go and appoint elders in each city in this island. So he said, okay, Titus, I, I've left you here and I, I've given you a responsibility. This is what he's saying in chapter one. I've given you a responsibility. This responsibility for you is to go and appoint elders in each city in Crete. And so in chapter one, Paul then describes the qualifications of an elder. So he left Titus with this this mission, and now he gives him the instruction of what these elders that he's appointing, what qualifications that they may have. And you find that in chapter one. But in chapter two, he moves away from the elders and he addresses he addresses everyone else. And if you look in, in verse one and three or in verse one, he addresses the older men in the church. He addresses the older men and how they should live and how they should behave and how they should be in the church. And as you go down in chapter two, you see in verse three and five, he addresses the older women and the younger women. And he shows them how they ought to behave in the church, who they ought to be in Christ. And and so he's given them this instruction as well. And as you keep going down in verse six and eight, he addresses the young men. And he tells the young men how they ought to be and and how they ought to operate in the church. And as you keep going down, then he addresses the bond slaves or the servants. And then Paul shows them how they ought to operate, how they ought to live, how godliness should look in their lives. And and when you step back, and this is kind of an aside, you see that the church in Crete was really a multi-generational, potentially multicultural church. It wasn't just a church full of young people. It wasn't a church full of the the elderly or more seasoned. 
But you had all these different generations all in this one church. Guess what? Just like here at the bridge, which is beautiful. Well, you have different generations, you have different ethnicities, and we're all coming together. So that was just like the church in Crete. They were this multicultural, um, multi-generational church in the Lord. And so Paul gives them instruction on how each person should act as they operate and move in the church. But then after addressing the bond servants in, in verse 9 and 10, he moves down to 11 and he brings the church back to their foundation of what solves it all. And that foundation is what? It is Jesus Christ. And so in verse 11 again, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This grace of God is referring to Jesus Christ. He's the one that has appeared because Jesus Christ is the personification. He is the personhood of God's grace. And so he's bringing it back saying that the grace of God, which is Jesus, has appeared and he is bringing something with him. He has brought salvation to all men. But guess what? There's some people that have a problem with that verse. They have a problem with this verse. They have a problem with the fact that the grace of God, that God has come to the earth and the thing that he has brought was salvation. People have a problem with that because they're saying, okay, the grace of God has appeared. And when he appeared on earth, you're telling me with all this homelessness that's going on at the time that Jesus Christ was on earth, that he didn't eradicate homelessness? Hold on, you're telling me that the grace of God has appeared and, and all those diseases, all those babies that were dying, and Jesus Christ, he didn't come and he didn't just eradicate homelessness and, and disease? Are you telling me that, hold on, the grace of God has just appeared and with it, he didn't bring the eradication of, of hunger with people who were dying of hunger, but, but he, he brought salvation? All of these, these other issues, and, and he didn't just eradicate those things, but the thing that he has brought is, is salvation. Why? Because your soul is even much more precious. Your relationship with God is even much more vital than a full stomach, than shelter. And so that is why Christ, when he, is, when he came, he brought salvation because all of those other issues that we think are big, they are secondary to your salvation. They are secondary to your relationship with God. And so this is the most important thing. This is the best thing that God could bring when he comes to the earth. That is, guess what? Redemption. And that's what Christ brings. He brings salvation unto all men, it says in this text. Why? Because that is the, the best thing that he could bring. It is salvation. It is a right relationship with God. It is union with God. And so that is the most important thing that God could bring if he came to earth. He could bring restoration. But just so that you can see the, the compassion and love of God, guess what? Christ not only healed spiritually, but he did also hear and restore naturally. And we see a perfect example of that in, in Matthew chapter 9. I don't want to go there now. I just kind of summarize it with the, with the paralytic man. You remember the paralytic man? And he, he was paralyzed and his friends, and they came and they dropped him down. Remember, he couldn't walk. And what did Jesus do first? What did he do first? He forgave his sins, right? His sins are forgiven. And then he healed them naturally. So we see the grace of God. 
So it's not like God is not a God of compassion. He, he's aware of all those issues out there. He's aware of homelessness. He is uh, aware of, of disease. He, he is aware of all the things that are going on. But the most important thing, the most important thing is our souls, our relationship with God. And so that's why it's great to feed the homeless. I love it. Let's feed the homeless, but let's not forget about the homeless man or woman's soul. Because that's most important. And so we see that is the first thing that Christ is doing. That is what he's bringing when he comes and brings this salvation. When God's grace appears on this earth, he's bringing this change. But there's another distinction that should also be made in this verse. That in Christ's first advent or in his first coming, he brought salvation or he's bringing salvation. But at his second coming, for us believers, yes, our salvation will be complete. But for the other believer, guess what? Salvation is not in his hand. A sword is in his hand. Judgment is coming now. So that is the distinction between his first coming and his second coming. There's not just going to be salvation. Salvation will be for us. It will be for the church. But for the unbeliever, there is coming a sword. There is coming judgment. So there's a distinction made in his first coming. Second coming, there's going to be judgment. And we see that in the salvation that he's bringing in verse 11, it says that the salvation is for all men, all people, not just one particular group with the right lineage, but it's for all people. And, and guess what? The proof of that, I believe you see that really well in Revelation 7 and 9, where, where John gets a glimpse of, of heaven. Remember, John gets a glimpse of heaven, and, and what does he say in Revelation 7 and 9? I just wrote it in here. He says that he's seen a multitude from every nation, all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb in white robes. Now, notice this. This vision that John has, where he sees all of these people, he says they all have white robes on, but he's able to tell that there's a distinction, right? Because he says that he sees all tribes and peoples and nations, meaning that there are different colors in heaven. Meaning that God's design from the beginning was always diversity. That it was not just an accident or it was not just something that happened as a result of the fall. See, if God's goal was just mono, uh, what do you call it when, it when it's all one race, one group, uh, mono, what is it? Monolithic, or, or I can't think of the term. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a term big people in sociology use when you have one large group. But that wasn't God's plan because guess what? In heaven, where everything would be restored, if it was God's plan for it, it would be just one race. John wouldn't have seen all these different races and cultures. But the fact that even in heaven where things will be restored, you still see all these ethnicities, these groups that shows you that this was part of God's plan. Diversity is something that God likes. And so it, it is a good thing to have diversity. God likes it. And so if God is okay with it, then, then, then I'm okay with it. So as we look back at this verse in verse 11, Again, we see that Jesus has come and he's appearing and he's bringing salvation to all men. Then that next part in verse 12 says, instructing us to deny ungodliness. See, when Jesus came in the world, yes, he brought instruction. Yes, he brought the words of the kingdom. And, and the reason that this is so important, because up until the time that Christ came, you had many rabbis. 
Yeah, many, many rabbis, many interpreters of the Old Testament, many interpreters of Moses and the law and the prophets, and they had their, their own take on what godliness looks like. And so if you had this rabbi over here, you would have to do so many things. And if you had this rabbi and this teaching over here, he would have these different commands. And so you had all these different teachers of the law with these commands on what ungodliness looks like, on what righteousness looks like. And you see Jesus actually addressing this in Matthew 23. When he gives the woes to the Pharisees because they were tying these commandments upon, of men upon the backs of the people to encourage them to walk in the ways of God. And so he was scolding them because they were adding to God's word. And so that was a problem that the Pharisees, they were adding all of these, these burdens into the people and what um, holiness actually looks like. And so when Christ came, when he came, he gave us a clear instruction on what actually godliness and living righteousness uh, rightly looks like. And that's why it's so important for pastors and teachers and people of scripture to not make demands upon the people that the gospel does not demand. Because all that does is add a weight upon the souls of the people. So Jesus, he comes, he brings salvation, and guess what? He gives us instruction or training um, in righteousness. And how to deny ungodliness. And guess what? Jesus also gives Paul instruction. And with that instruction that Paul gets, Paul gives it to the church. And so that's why you have in chapter 2, Paul is addressing each particular person in the church. Why? Because he has this instruction on what godliness, on what righteousness should look like in each individual generation. And so Paul is giving that in chapter 2. But here's the major point. Here's a, a major point after you, you get through 12 where you see that he says he's instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Here is the major turning point in these in his verses of scripture. And the major point that we see in this text and about the life of Christ is that while Jesus came to earth and provided instruction in godliness, it was not instruction alone that he brought. It was not as if Jesus just came to give us a bunch of rules. Yes, he gave us instruction and training in righteousness, but look what the text says. It says to live sensibly and righteously and godly, guess what? In the present age, the instruction and righteousness, the, the denying godliness was for this present age. See, because when there's a new heaven and new earth, guess what? We're not going to have to deal with our sinful flesh. We're not going to have to deal with um, the worldly desires that he's saying in here that we should deny. See, we're not going to have these battles, but Jesus Christ has given us instruction on how to survive or how to live here on this fallen earth in this present state. And that is the distinction here that he's showing us, that this instruction was for our survival here. But here's the key distinction in this. When Jesus Christ lived on this earth and he brought instruction, always accompanying his instruction was the promise of heavenly treasure, was the promise of an eternal inheritance, was the promise of a resurrection. It was the promise of entrance into the kingdom of God. See, the believers we cannot just live our life based on a set of rules, but we have to look up and look forward to the heavenly treasures that lay before us. And that is the teaching of Jesus. 
He was always trying to get the people to see beyond the present, beyond the right now, and to look to the heavenlies because that is where the true treasure is. And so that's what accompanies Jesus' teaching. It's the treasure of heaven. It's the treasure of a resurrection. It is seeing him face to face. And guess what? That is what encouraged the early church. That is what encouraged him to live righteously. It was the thought that Christ was returning and all things are going to be restored. I'm going to have my glorified body and I'm going to live forever with him. It was with that mindset. It was that thought that encouraged the church to endure persecution they, they value their spiritual treasures. They appraised it. It, was, it. it meant something to them. So much so that they were encouraged to endure so many trials and tribulations of this world. Why? Because they knew they had this heavenly treasure. And they knew that when this blessed hope returned, they knew that when their great God and Savior returned, that all things would be well. And so it was this mindset, it was this thought that encouraged them to keep going as they endured persecution as they endured the trials of this life. And guess what, my brothers and sisters? If you do not have this eternal perspective, if you're not constantly valuing, if you're not constantly appraising your heavenly treasures, guess what? You are going to turn into a Christian that is just stuck on a rigid set of rules and you're going to be miserable. You're not going to have the joy of the Lord. You have to look up and you have to look forward. We have to. Because it, it, it is a battle in here. So we have to look forward or we have to look up and we have to look forward to our heavenly treasures. If your joy, if your faith is only based in this present life and trying to be like Christ, if all you're focusing on is just denying your sins and battling your flesh, if you do not look up, if you do not look forward towards your eternal tomorrow, you're going to be a joyless Christian. You have to look up and look forward. You got to know that there's something else. That Christ is returning. That, that there's more. We have to use this as a catalyst to endure this life. And that is what Paul is encouraging the believers. And that's what you will see actually all throughout Scripture. They're looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of their great God and Savior. But I, want, I also want to, I want to bring something else to you in this text. First, Paul says in verse 11, he, he tells the, the, the Titus, he tells them that um, Christ has appeared, the blessed hope, to bring salvation and instruction in righteousness and godliness and to desire to de, um, deny uh, worldly desires and, and to live godly in this present world. But guess what? Those things are difficult to do. Those things are difficult to do in this fallen world with this fallen flesh. It's not always easy to turn the other cheek. It's not always easy to prefer my brothers or sisters and to myself. It's not always easy to, to stand up for, for righteousness. It's not always, it's not always easy to live godly in this present world. Matter of fact, when you try to live God, I'm, I want to take you to a verse. Go to 2 Timothy 3.12. I want to show you what happens when you try to live godly in this present world. 2 Timothy 
312. Do we hear? All right. 2 Timothy 3.12. This is how Paul encourages Timothy about about godliness. He says this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what will happen? Will be persecuted. It's not easy. Jesus came and gave this instruction on how to live in this present world. Living godly is not easy. And we, we even see this now with the, just take, for example, the, the business in Oregon, the baker. Some of you guys have been reading the headlines about the baker in Oregon who he, he makes cakes or this family, they make cakes. And because he refuses to endorse homosexuality by making a cake for a gay wedding, um, he lost his business. He was sued. He's forced. He has to pay like $160,000 to this great, this gay couple who, couple who is claiming, um, they're having pain from it and all these different things. All this, this, this business, they're just trying to just live godly. They're just trying to do the, the things that the scripture says right in here to, to live righteously, sensibly, and godly in this present age. They're, they're trying to live godly. But guess what? As we live godly, there is going to come persecution. This thing just gets difficult. And so that is why they have this blessed hope. That is why the text flows in this way. Yes, I'm telling you to go and live godly. But as you live godly, there's going to come persecution. It's going to get difficult. But to hold you over, you have to have this blessed hope in your mind. You have to have the return of Christ in your mind as you're enduring the trials of this life. You're focusing on these treasures so you can go forward. See, that was what it means to, to look forward or to look up or to look up and to look forward. I'm keeping my mind on this treasure as I walk through this hell in life, as I walk through the battles that I'm facing, my mind, my spirit is on the treasures of God and it is these treasures that are helping me to endure. So, this is why it's so important to have our, our mind focused, our waiting, our looking for this blessed hope because it's a battle. We're in a war here as believers. This is a this is a war. This is spiritual warfare. That is why Paul in, in Ephesians he describes the Christian like in like a soldier. And Paul talks about this, this battle that he has in his flesh, and his mind is serving God, but his flesh wants to serve sin. He he's a walking battle. We're walking battles. Because in our spirit, we're trying to be obedient to God's word, but our, but our flesh wants the, the things of this world. It, it is desiring the sinful things, so we are just walking battles. See, this is a battle you're in in this life. you got to understand that we're in a fight. And that's where in this fight, we need to have our mind focused on the treasures of God to endure, to keep going forward. And I want to give you an example of this, just a, a practical example. Look um, in chapter 2. Same chapter. Let's just take the young woman, for example. I want to show you how this works in just a practical sense. Look at verse 4, where Paul addresses the young woman. In verse 4, when he addresses the young woman, look what he says. He encourages the older women to do this for the younger women. He says, uh, so that they may encourage, this is the older women, the younger women, look, to love their husbands. We can just stop right there. To love their husbands. Guess what? That can be a difficult thing to do. You know how I know? Because I'm a husband. And I know that I can do bonehead stuff. I know that I can do stuff that drives my wife crazy. 
And if all of her joy and hope is in me, that's bad news. If she does not treasure Christ, his return, the riches in heaven, she's going to be a miserable wife. Trying to just be, find all of her joy in me and satisfaction in me. See, see the young, and then it goes on, it says um, to the younger women to love their children. So not just the husband, then you have the children. And then it says to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being uh, kind, being subject, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's the, if the young wife does not have an eternal perspective, if she's not valuing her treasures in Christ and his return, this is going to be a difficult walk. You, you have to know that you have something in Christ. And so he's encouraging the body by letting know you have a blessed hope. And this can even happen in ministry. And I know this firsthand as God been working in me. Let's say you're a person that just loves witnessing the people. You just love seeing a person get converted. You just love seeing a person go from dark to light. That brings you so much joy. And since it brings you so much joy, you pursue it all your life. But here's the question. What happens when people are not converting? Where is your joy? If your joy is just based only here on earth, you're going to have some problems. That's why our joy has to be all in Christ and his return. The blessed hope. If not, if, if I just live it based on only things that I'm seeing occur and happen in this life, I'm going to get miserable at times because this life just ups and downs. So the center of my hope, the center of my joy has to be in Christ. The blessed hope, his return, the heavenly treasures that accompany him, the resurrection, entering into the, the kingdom of God. This is what encouraged the early church. They were focused on these things. It wasn't just the present world. They weren't just focused on this. They were, they were focusing on the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope, waiting for the blessed hope in the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's where their mindset is at. That is what they're thinking. And I want to show you in another place where the same thought is, is kind of occurring. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Our mind has to be up and forward. Can't just be only in this present life and what we see here. If not, it's not good. And Paul's going to make this clear. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Just give you a little background. There's some debate going on over the resurrection. Some people saying there is no resurrection and so Paul has to address this heresy. And this is what he says in verse 19, or towards the end of that, that discussion. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, only in the present, guess what he says? We are all men most to be pitied. If this is it. If this is it, if this is all, if I'm just living righteously for God and I just die and just go away and that's it. He said, we are men most to be pitied. If our main focus is just on this present, 
We are men to be pitied. If there's no resurrection to life, if there's no new heaven, if there's no new earth, if I'm just going to live this Christian life and that is it, he said, we're men most to be pitied. If I'm just going to just focus on only on this, only on the present, only on what I can see, if there's no resurrection, if there's no life after this, if there's nothing coming, then this is, this is what? This is not good. So there has, so Paul is showing that there, there is this treasure that accompanies Christ, the resurrection. That's part of the blessed hope. That's one of the things that accompanies his return. It's the resurrection. That is a vital treasure that the believer needs to understand and properly assess in value. It can't just be based on what I'm looking at and seeing in this present world. It's not just on me denying my flesh and trying to be like Christ here on this earth, but I am looking for something else. A resurrection, a treasure, and all these things accompany Christ on his return. Think about the life of Paul. Paul's enduring beatings, imprisonment, he's stoned, He's naked. He's slandered. Is it just to go and die and that's it? Paul said there has to be a resurrection. There has to be something greater. And so it is this motivation that keeps him going forward. I want to show you another place where Paul encourages other Christians in this, this same way. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Look how he encourages the church, the Corinthians that are suffering persecution, who are dealing with different trials. How does he encourage them? 17, he says, for momentary light afflictions is producing for us, guess what? An eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. That is what this is producing for us. This is going to, this is all this, this, this eternal weight of glory, all of this, this is ultimately fulfilled and revealed in the return of the blessed hope. That's what has happened. So as the, as the Christians are enduring persecution, he has them looking up and looking forward. Not just on, not on what's going on. Now you just need to be more holy. Yes, you have to live righteously. Yes, you want to be like Christ, but you have to look up and look forward to the blessed hope and the treasure that comes with his appearing. And so the body of Christ is being encouraged by Christ coming. Let me give you one more. Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18. You hear? Romans 8.18. See how Paul encourages the Romans doing their sufferings, doing their trials. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present age, just like Titus, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you see what's happening here? Do you, do you see the trend? Do you see the common encouragement to the church? As they endure tough times in life, the encouragement is to look up and look forward. That there's this glory that is coming. And so this is what we're, they're using to endure. 
And if this is good enough for the early church, this is good enough for us. That we can use the treasure that it comes with Christ, the, the heavenly rewards. We can use that as a catalyst to keep going forward. That's what Paul is doing. That's what the apostles and early teachers did. They, they were trying to get the body to value this treasure that they have. That this treasure was so worth all the things that they're going through. And to keep your mind focused on this treasure that is coming. So he's encouraging them to keep their mind focused on this blessed hope. That's what the church was focused on. That's how they got through. That's how they endured the trials of life. They looked up. They looked forward with anticipation. And so you had some Christians throughout the year who, who were so looking up and so looking forward that many stopped actually working. And many stopped doing the things that they should have been doing. And guess what? I don't blame some of them in really many ways because I understand this life can get tough and you so want Christ to come. The latest one that happened, I believe, was the, um, if you guys remember the, the Herald Camping one. Remember that? They thought the world was going to end. I've seen documentary people were, were, were selling their, their boats, their houses, cashing in their 401ks. Why? Because Christ was, was coming and they were so anticipated. And I understand you want Christ to come. I know that's a glorious thing, but it, he's going to come at Christ at his own time, not when we man try to predict and determine, yes, he's coming this generation and that. I know every generation says it, that he's coming in their time and that's, that's every generation. Every generation says Christ is coming in their, in their lifetime, right? And so um, we must look for this blessed hope. So we've seen so far Paul's perspective on this. I want to show you just one more perspective. I want to show you Peter's perspective on the blessed hope. Go with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 3 down to 6, and then 13 as well. So... First Peter chapter one, verse three through six, and we'll look at 13 as well. Peter, in this letter, again, he's writing to the persecuted church. They're being persecuted because they're Christians. They're dealing with tough times. Let's see how he encourages the church. Verse three, I'm going to read. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, I love this part. I know this is not the topic, but look what it says, has caused us to be born again. I mean, it's God who brings the, the regeneration. It's him that moves us, not us. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope because Christ is alive. It says, to obtain an inheritance, here we go, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, look, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's the key, key verse. The, the Christians are, are suffering persecution. They're dealing with trials. How does Peter encourage them? He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
Even though you've been distressed by various trials, you rejoice in your heavenly treasure. You rejoice in this thing that is not fading away. You rejoice in this great glory that you have. Even though trials are hard, even though it is tough, he said, find your joy in this and rejoice. That's what a rejoicing is. It's not just focused on the things of this world and this place, but they're finding their rejoicing and that treasure that would not fade away. That is how we rejoice, keeping our eyes up and looking forward. The blessed hope. Go with me back to our, our main text, Titus. So the question is, how sure should the Christian be in the blessed hope? How confident should the appearing of Christ be upon the heart of the believer? And I would say just as sure as the spirit of God is working in you, giving you the new affections, new desires, new mindset, you can be sure that Christ is returning. Look at verse 14. Let me show you what I mean when I say that. So we say, I'm going to start in 13, I'm going to go down to 14 to give you clarity on why I just made that statement. He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So how can I know that Christ has redeemed me from every lawless deed? How can I know that this purifying effect has happened unto me? The proof of that is the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the proof that Christ's redemptive work has been applied to your account. That is the proof that Jesus Christ is living in you. The proof is the Holy Spirit. When you have the Holy Spirit, when you have new affections, new desires, a new perspective, that is the proof that this redemption, that you have been redeemed from every lawless deed. And so if we have this spirit already working in us and we already see the fruit of being redeemed, we know that Christ, when he's returning, is going to change things. Because we already have the fruits right now. We already have see that purifying effect happening in us right now. We already seen the, the works of Christ right now. That's why Titus 3 and 5 says that not by works of righteousness, which we've done. No, it wasn't our work. He said, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on us through Christ. That is how the purifying effect happens. So if you've been redeemed and you've already experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you know that just as sure as that is working in your life, Christ returning to bring along the treasures as well is coming with. It's going to happen. But this, my brothers and sisters, you have to have this eternal perspective. Without it, this life is going to give us ups and downs. The steadiness is the treasure up here. That is what encouraged the body of 
uh, Christ in the early church. They were focused on this blessed hope. They were focused, focused on the return of Christ. And it was this that encouraged Paul to go through all those beatings. He knew that there was a resurrection. He knew that there was a glory. And so he wasn't worried about this life. He was focused. He was appraising his spiritual treasures. And boy, they were valuable to him. So my prayer to you, my prayer to God for you is that you will begin to value, to spiritually appraise the treasures that you have laid up for you in heaven. That you may begin to value the resurrection that comes with Christ at his appearing. That you may begin to value your interest into the kingdom of God. You walking in the new heaven and the new earth. I pray that you value that. And that that encourages you to keep walking on. To keep going on. To keep going strong for the Lord. Because we're waiting for the blessed hope. Amen. Amen.